Hi, this is Edwin Crozier with the Franklin Church of Christ. I want to welcome you and thank you for joining us as we open God's Word to learn from it about how to serve Him and honor and glorify Him. On the second Sunday night of every month, we devote our lesson at the Franklin Church of Christ to answering questions submitted by members and oftentimes guests that visit with us at the Franklin Church. This particular lesson that you're about to hear answers the question, should we anoint with oil? We're going to take a look at James chapter 5, verses 14 and following, and look at what we should be doing when it comes to anointing with oil. Open up your Bible and join along in this study with us. One of the great aspects of Christianity is God's permission to His children to grow. And what growth means, especially when it comes to studying the Bible, is that there are going to be times that you recognize that some question that you thought you'd put to bed, some issue that you had studied and you thought you found the answer, you came back to it sometime later and studied it and realized that you didn't have it quite right. And God allows you to change. He allows you to come directly to what His Word says and to grow and to learn from that. I bring that up because the question tonight is one of those areas where I have done exactly that. The question that we're dealing with tonight is, should we anoint with oil? James chapter 5 and verse 14 says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. There were years in which people would ask me, Edwin, do you believe this passage teaches that we should call on the elders and they should really take oil and anoint them with oil? And I would give an answer to that. But the more I studied it, the less satisfied I became with the answer that I had. And finally, I had to change. And I just want to share with you where I am now on this question. As with all our question and answer sermons, if I'm mistaken about anything, if you think I'm wrong, if you think I've missed something or misunderstand something, I am more than happy for you to share that with me, for us to get together and study God's Word and see exactly what it says and what it means for us today. Tonight, as we answer this question, I'm going to explain to you where I've been on it and what I would say about it, and then where I am today and why I changed and what I think this passage means for us. And then we're going to conclude by pointing out directly what this passage advises you and me to do as we take a look at God's Word in James chapter 5 and verse 14. In James 5 and verse 14, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. For years, as I would answer this question, I would point out, well, dealing with physical sickness, talking about healing the sick, This passage has got to be referring to one of two things. When we compare this to everything else that we read in the Scripture, it's got to be referring to one of two things. One of which is demonstrated in Mark chapter 6 and verse 13. They cast out, this is talking about the apostles, they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. This is clearly a reference to miraculous gifts of the Spirit, to the gift of healing that that was provided to the apostles and to some of the ancient brethren. Those gifts being done away with because the Spirit is no longer revealing or confirming His Word, we would not anoint with oil today in order to heal the sick because that was regulating a use of the miraculous gifts of the Spirit. 
Or the other possibility, when we look at Scripture, is that it's not dealing with a miraculous healing, but it's dealing with an issue of medicine. That's another possibility, based on how we see this used in Scripture. In Luke chapter 10 and verse 34, you remember the parable of the Good Samaritan. And in Luke chapter 10 and verse 34, as the Samaritan finds this man on the road, it says he went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. If it's talking about a medicinal use of oil in order to heal the sick, we see this exemplified here. We recognize that oil was used as a medicine, along with wine, in order to help the sick and to help the wounded. And so, what we would find is is that our medicinal practices, being so far greater than what was going on here, instead of trying to continue on with elders anointing with oil... The greater point behind this for us would be is that that elders need to make sure that those in the congregation receive the medicinal aid that they need. And we'd get to an issue of benevolence within the church. And so for years, this is what I would say, but I had a problem with this. I constantly had a problem with this. And I'd go back and forth between which one I thought was the more likely. For instance, I'd start with the miraculous view and say that this was talking about regulating miraculous gifts of the Spirit. And I struggle with that because... That would assume, then, that every elder in the body of Christ had been given the miraculous gift of healing. And I just can't find anything in the Scripture that would suggest that. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the Scripture there reads, beginning in verse 7, "...but the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all." For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healings by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. There's nothing in this text that says that any of these gifts are particular for elders among the congregation. There's nothing here that says that every elder in every congregation would receive one of these gifts. Further, recognizing that miraculous gifts of the Spirit were passed by the laying on of the hands of the apostle, I struggle, for instance, in Titus. Titus chapter 1. In Titus chapter 1 and verse 5, Paul says to Titus, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. Here were elders that were going to be appointed by an evangelist. The apostle wasn't present. They wouldn't receive the laying on of the hands to get this gift of healing when they became elders. How would that happen? And so I'd struggle with that, and I'd wrestle with that, and I'd move down to the medicinal view. And I'd say, well, see, Luke 10.34 demonstrates a more medicinal, natural means that the elders are supposed to come and help provide this benevolence of medicinal aid to the brethren. But then I had a problem with that. I started struggling with that, because I'd look in, in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 15 again, and I'd notice something. Verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call the elders of the church. Let, him, let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Then verse 15. And I want you to notice very carefully. Make sure you're there and you're reading along with me. And this is in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 15. And the prayer of faith will say... Excuse me. James chapter 5, verse 15. Sorry. James chapter 5, verse 15. See, here's the problem. First Peter begins for me at the bottom of that page and up at the top. It said First Peter. That's what I looked at. James chapter 5, verse 15. And the prayer of faith will save the sick. You see that? 
and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Not might, not maybe, not can, not if the Lord wills, but the Lord will do this. And I struggle because I've known sick people. And I've known faithful brethren that prayed for them. And I've known elders that prayed for them. And they didn't get better. And so I struggle with that. They will happen. Not maybe, not can, not if the Lord wills. It will happen. And so I go back to the miraculous view. Oh, he must be talking about the miraculous gift of the Spirit. And if somebody has that gift of healing, then it will happen. And, and so I go back and forth and back and forth. And then I also began to struggle with, well, is he even talking about physical healing? I began to struggle with that, first of all, just because as you keep reading on down in the passage, if he's committed sins, you'll be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. I started thinking, well, that may not be talking about physical healing at all. In fact, if it's physical healing, it seems to me not to fit with other things in the Scripture. For instance, 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 23. In 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 23, Timothy had been dealing with frequent infirmities in his stomach. And Paul said to him in 1 Timothy 5 and verse 23, No longer drink only water, but call the elders to you and have them pray over you and anoint you with oil. That's not what he said. What he said there was, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. Now, why would Paul say that if the real answer was, that, look, get the elders over here, have them pray for you and anoint you with oil, and you will be healed of physical sickness. Why give this other advice? Think about 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 20. In 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 20, Erastus stayed in Corinth, but Trophimus I have left in my lead sick. Now, why would he leave Trophimus and Miletus sick if all he had to do was call the elders and they could pray over him, anoint him with oil, and he would be healed? Why leave him sick? And then in Philippians chapter 2, where Paul had expressed all the concern that he had had for Epaphroditus. Why have all that concern? In Philippians chapter 2 and verse 25, he says, Yet I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick almost unto death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I send him the more eagerly when you, excuse me, that when you see him again you may rejoice, and I may be less sorrowful. Why did Paul have all that concern and all that worry if all he had to do was call the elders there, pray over him, anoint with oil, and he would be healed? And so I struggle with this. Is it physical? And basically what I've had to conclude for me personally, and this is what I want to share with you tonight, is that when he talks about praying for the sick here, he's not talking about physical sickness. In James chapter 5 and verse 14, I think he's talking about spiritual weakness. And allow me to share with you why I believe that's what he's talking about. I recognize this has been discussed, this has been debated, this has been talked about, and when we're done here tonight, you may not agree with me. That's fine. We'll talk about it some more. But let me just share with you why I've become convinced that that's what this passage is talking about. First of all, the term that's translated here, aspineo, means to be weak, feeble, or lacking strength. Of course, this term is used at times in the Scripture to refer to physical weakness or physical sickness or lameness or feebleness, but it's also equally used throughout Scripture to refer to spiritual weakness or lameness. Look in Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4 and verse 19. In Romans chapter 4 and verse 19, Paul 
said, speaking of Abraham, Romans 4.19, and not being weak in faith. Same word used there. Not talking about physical illness, talking about a spiritual weakness. In Romans chapter 14 and verse 21. Romans chapter 14 and verse 21. It is good neither to eat meat, nor drink wine, nor do anything by which your brother stumbles, or is offended, or is made weak. Here again. Not talking about physical sickness, talking about spiritual weakness. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 29. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 29, Paul said, Who is weak? And I am not weak. Who is made to stumble? And I did not burn with indignation. Once again, that's talking about spiritual weakness. Let me ask you, if you read James chapter 5 and verse 14, and if instead of saying, is anyone among you sick, if it said, is anyone among you weak, would you struggle with this? That's a perfectly legitimate translation. It's used that way throughout Scripture several times. If the translators had decided to say weak instead of sick, what would we have thought this passage was about? I believe we would have just naturally thought it was about spiritual weakness. Second reason. Because spiritual weakness is more consistent with verse 16. One of the struggles that I would have all the way along is that I know by the time I get to verse 16, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. I know by the time I get there, he's talking about something spiritual. And, and therefore, I would have to try to come up with some way that between verse 15 and verse 16, there was some kind of shift. If in verse 15, if 14 and verse 15, he was talking about physical sickness, I'm going to have to come up with some kind of shift. And I would try to do that, and I've heard brethren that, that have claimed that, and, and they see a shift there, and that's okay. But I just really struggle with that, because for me, as I'm reading that, to me, to say that there's some kind of shift there, just doesn't seem to look at what the text actually says. Whereas if I recognize verse 14 and 15 is dealing with spiritual weakness, I don't have to come up with a shift. It fits very well. In the immediate context of the next verse, it all just flows, and a lot of my questions just go right out the door. Therefore, I think it's talking about spiritual weakness. Third, the death that James is concerned about is a spiritual death. When somebody's sick and we're praying for them, why are we praying for them? What do we want not to happen? We don't want them to die, do we? Right? We don't want them to die. And so when James is trying to overcome this sickness, the prayer about this is we, we don't want you to die. However, what death is James concerned about in this book? In James chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, he says, "...but each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed." Then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. What kind of death? Not physical death. He's talking here about spiritual death. But then even more in the immediate context, James chapter 5, as he ends the book, in verse 19 and verse 20, brethren, and think about this. As he's, he's got this crescendo, as he's coming up and ending the book here at this point, and he's working to this point where he can make this comment at the end of the book and close out the letter, and as he talks about this sickness, and he, comes, and he talks about prayer, and then he gets to verse 19, he says, Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns the sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Which death is that? 
He's not talking about physical death. He's talking about spiritual death. Makes sense to me that if the death James is concerned about is spiritual, then when we back up a few verses, he talks about being sick. The sickness and the weakness he's concerned about that would lead to that death is going to be a spiritual sickness or weakness. Number four. I think spiritual weakness just fits better in the context of the book. As you move all the way through the book, and you come now to the end of this, what is it that James is concerned about? You go back to the beginning of the book and you start off. James 1, verse 1. James, the bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. Greetings. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And on he goes. He starts off talking about a group of people that have been scattered, that are going through persecution and oppression, that are dealing with suffering and trials and tribulation. And that is what he is addressing throughout this book, how to deal with that and how to respond of that. And then you get all the way up into James chapter 5 and all the things that he teaches in the middle here about Christian living and about overcoming with faith and about serving Jesus Christ even in the midst of persecution. And you get down to chapter 5. And let's just begin at verse 1, kind of getting the context. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the just. He does not resist you. See, there's this comment about those who are rich and wealthy who are holding down and persecuting and oppressing the Christians. He says, therefore, be patient, brethren. Now he turns to the brethren. Be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed to endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Verse 12, But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes, your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. Here he's talking about all the persecution, the suffering, the trials that are coming on them. And now, in verse 13, he begins to ask some questions. Is anyone among you suffering? Well, what kind of question is that? Of course they're suffering. That's what this whole letter is about. They're suffering. What do you do about it? He says, pray. You pray about it. You need to turn to God. Philippians. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6. You remember what Paul taught there? In Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 7. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 7. Casting all your care upon Him, for He cares for you. Are you suffering? Then pray. Turn to God. He'll strengthen you. Are you cheerful? Well, they're suffering. How on earth are they going to be cheerful? Well, they're following the advice he gave at the very beginning of the book. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. 
They're facing the suffering. How did he tell them to respond? He said, be cheerful. Have joy. So he says, you're suffering, pray. Are you cheerful? Because you're counting it all joy. Then what do you do? Sing psalms. Acts 16.25 is such a great example of that. In Acts chapter 16 and verse 25, Paul and Silas are in prison in Philippi. And in Acts 16 and verse 25, we know what they did. At midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Were they suffering? Yes. So what were they doing? They were praying. Were they cheerful? Absolutely. So what were they doing? They were singing hymns to God. But not everybody who goes through suffering will just naturally follow James' advice to count it all joy. Others, instead of counting it all joy, might go the other way. They might begin to be discouraged. They might become weak. I don't believe that James, after the second question, are you cheerful, now switches gears and starts talking about some physical sickness. I think he's going down that exact same line. You're suffering. Pray. Are you cheerful because of it? Sing psalms now. Or are you weak and discouraged because of it? Are you distressed and falling because of it? If so, here's what you need to do. Call your elders and have them come pray for you, anointing you with oil. And then God will lift you up. I think it just flows in the context of the book and in the immediate context. Speaking of biblical context, there's, just some, there's an amazing thing when you read the book of James. It's amazing to me how many parallels chapter 5 actually has with chapter 1. It's like bookends in this letter. It's really amazing. Just to be quick about this and to make it easy for you, I've got all this up here on the screen. But just take a look at this. James chapter 1 and verse 2, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. You've got suffering, but you've got joy. We've already read James 5.13. You've got suffering. If you're suffering, let him pray. And cheerfulness. Suffering and joy. In James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Suffering and patience. Perseverance. James 5.10, My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. You see this, kind of, this bookend idea that you're going to suffer, but you've got to persevere. You've got to keep on. James chapter 1 and verse 11. For no sooner has the sun risen with the burning heat than it withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes, so the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. James 5, 1 through 3. We read it just moments ago. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded. The rich of the world that were persecuting and oppressing these Christians... So judgment's going to come on them. Just watch. It's going to come. James chapter 1 and verse 12. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. We've got the blessedness of endurance plus the reward of enduring and persevering. And then James 5.11, same thing. Indeed, we count them blessed to endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord. See, there's the reward that the Lord is very compassionate. And merciful. You remember the reward that Job got at the end. Things were better for him in the end than they were in the beginning because he endured and therefore was blessed. You got it at the beginning of the book and at the end of the book. Just like bookends here. James 1, verse 13. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Now here is a, a parallel, and yet it's a little bit of a contrast. In James chapter 1, and verse 13, it's saying when you face the temptation and you sin, don't blame God. 
Then at the end of the book, it gives you the answer of what you're actually supposed to do. Instead, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. James 5:16. Don't blame God. Confess your sins and pray to God for forgiveness. Got the book in there on that teaching. James chapter 1, verses 14 through 15. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. And the entire book ends with, Let him know that he who turns the sinner from the error of his ways will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Both ends of the book we find that. Then in James chapter 1 and verse 26, If anyone among you thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. He talks about how we're supposed to use our tongues in James chapter 1. Interestingly, in James chapter 5, verse 9 and 12, he gives two examples of bridling your tongue. He says, don't grumble against one another. When you're facing the suffering, not only do we not complain to God and blame Him, but we don't complain about our brethren and blame them. Don't grumble against one another. And then in verse 12, But above all, my brethren, don't swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. And it's amazing here, this first chapter and this last chapter, how parallel they are, all the things that they hit that are just exactly the same. And it's, it's, it's as though James is just putting these two bookends on his letter to say, here's what this is all about. Then notice this. At the beginning of the book, in James 1, 5 through 6, he says, If you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. Then we parallel that with what the passage we're dealing with. Is anyone among you sick? Are you weak? Do you lack strength? If you lack wisdom, at the beginning of the book, you're supposed to pray. And how are you supposed to pray? You're supposed to pray with faith. I think we find here in James 5, verse 14 and 15, the parallel statement. If you lack wisdom, what are you? You're weak. If you lack strength, if you're weak, if you're sick, pray. But pray how? Pray with faith. Pray without doubting. And God will lift you up. Just like God will give you wisdom, God will lift you up. And the prayer of faith will save you. It maintains that parallel that we find. I think that's very important. It helps me understand it. The next reason why I believe this is dealing with spiritual weakness is that the problems with the physical illness of use are removed. Now, I know that's just very practical, but basically one of the reasons why I think it's spiritual is because all those problems I mentioned earlier that I had with the idea of it being a physical sickness are gone. Because the fact is, you don't have to have miraculous gifts to be able to pray for somebody. Elders today, just like elders then, could pray. We can pray for one another. And here's the other thing. When a child of God who is weak and has sinned repents and prays with faith for God to restore him and strengthen him, God says yes 100% of the time. He never says no to that prayer. Ever. And that's what he says in this passage, isn't it? God will do this. I know he does it with spiritual illness when the person recognizes their weakness and comes to his brethren and asks for strength and confesses and prays with faith, which we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a minute, God always, always, always says yes. Why? Because God is not willing that any should perish, but wants all to come to repentance. He wants all of us to be saved. He always says yes to that prayer. And then I think it makes a lot more sense when you get down to the last couple of verses there. It talks about the prayer with Elijah. 
This, sometimes because of our view about the physical sickness, I know verse 17 and 18 seem to be just kind of plucked out, and I wondered why did this have anything to do with the prayer for physical illness. Here's Elijah. Verse 17 was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it wouldn't rain, and it didn't rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and, he had, and heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Here was Elijah going through oppression, going through persecution, going through tribulation, and he turned to God for strength. And he turned for God to do something about it, to follow through with his word. And if you remember from our prayer focus, we, one of the chapters was about that, pointed out that Elijah's prayer was a prayer of faith, not just wishful thinking, but a prayer of faith based on God's promise and what he would do when the people went into idolatry. But when we recognize it as an issue of dealing with discouragement, dealing with weakness, dealing with getting strength from God to overcome those who would come against us, the example of Elijah just makes a lot more sense, and it just fits right in there. It corresponds almost exactly. So for these reasons, I think he's not dealing with physical sickness anyway. And that when we look at this passage and we talk about praying for faith and healing, the prayer of faith healing the sick, that he's not dealing with folks in the hospital. He's not dealing with folks with the flu. He's not dealing with folks who have some kind of physical ailment, but a spiritual weakness. Of course, we ask, well, what does that mean about anointing with oil? Because remember, that's our question. Our question wasn't, what's the sickness here? Our question is, what about anointing with oil? But before I could answer that question, I had explained to you what I thought this spiritual sickness was, so that it makes sense. Because once we recognize that this is a spiritual sickness, we begin to see that James is establishing a picture. He's using physical terms to describe a spiritual issue. And he presents this picture of somebody who is sick, and then he calls and bring, he says, call people in and let them bring those things that would be like medicine. Let them bring that medicine that's going to strengthen them and lift them up. And because of that, when we get to the anointing with oil, I don't believe the import of James' point is we need elders to come in and pour oil on their head. But rather he's talking about we need elders to come in and give them the medicine they need that will strengthen them and heal them. Now, lest you think that I'm just pulling that out of the air and trying to just snow you over, I just want you to think about this. Throughout James, there's all kinds of illustrations that are drawn from the Old Testament. And I believe that here at the end of James chapter 5, there is an actual direct link to an Old Testament passage. Jeremiah chapter 30, verses 12 through 17. Jeremiah chapter 30, beginning at verse 12. This is really powerful. In Jeremiah chapter 30 and verse 12, for thus says the Lord, your affliction is incurable, your wound is severe. There is no one to plead your cause that you may be bound up. You have no healing medicines. All your lovers have forgotten you. They do not seek you. For I have wounded you with the wound of an enemy, with the chastisement of a cruel one, for the multitude of your iniquities, because your sins have increased. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Multitude of iniquities. Wasn't that in James 5 at the very end? You cover a multitude of sins. Your multitude of iniquities. I have, because your sins have increased, I have done these things to you. Why do you cry out about your affliction? Your sorrow is incurable because of the multitude of your iniquities. Because your sins have increased, I have done these things to you. Therefore, all those who devour you... I've got to either pick the screen or the Bible here because 
I look up and look back, I lose my place. Therefore, all those who devour, devour you shall be devoured, and all your adversaries, every one of them, shall go into captivity. Those who plunder you shall become plunder, and all who prey upon you I will make a prey. For I will restore health to you and heal you of your wounds, says the Lord, because they call you an outcast, saying, This is Zion. No one seeks her. Here in Jeremiah chapter 30, verses 12 through 17, we see this very parallel passage. A multitude of iniquities produces sickness. And here in Jeremiah, Jeremiah presents a picture of a man who is wounded, who is sick, and he needs healing bandages. He needs the healing medicines to overcome it. But there's nobody there who will help him. God says, now down the road, I'm going to heal you. James is calling the same picture to mind. Because of your multitude of iniquities, you're sick. You're wounded. But unlike the Israelites who had no one to come bandage and apply the healing medicines, he points out that when we're in Christ's church, among brethren, we have people to call on. We have those to whom we can go, and they will come, and they will bandage the wounds. They will apply the healing medicines. And they'll strengthen us and restore us. Therefore, I am convinced that in James chapter 5, if we really want to make this an issue of going and pouring literal oil on somebody's head, I believe we'll miss the import of what James was really saying. Because the real import is there are folks that are struggling, they're weak, and they're dying spiritually. And they need somebody to come in and help heal them. Strengthening them. Bandaging them up. Applying the healing salves and medicines, the oil that would help them. I believe that's what we find here. And that's what we need to be doing. Applying that anointing oil, that healing medicine to brethren when they're spiritually sick, when they're weak, when they're distressed, when they're discouraged. And we could stop here, and I think we would have a better understanding of what the anointing with oil is in James chapter 5, but I don't think that that would help us really practically with our lives. I want us to just think for a moment and think about what we need to do then. What should we do? We're the person... James says to you, are you sick? Are you weak? If that's you, if you're weak, if you're distressed, if you're discouraged, if there is something that is weighing down on you, that's causing you to start heading the other direction, instead of being able to be cheerful in the Lord and singing psalms and praising God, you're becoming weak and afflicted and discouraged and distressed, what should you do? The very first thing is, call the elders to pray with you. That's what he says. In James chapter 5, if you're sick, verse 14, call the elders of the church and let them come pray over you and apply that oil. Give you that healing medicine. Call them. Now, I want you to notice something here, by the way, brethren, if I can just point this out. It does not say, if any among you is sick, wait around and see if the elders notice. Alright? doesn't say that. If you're sick... Call the elders. Whose responsibility is that? Certainly. Elders and brethren, we're, we're supposed to be keeping our eyes open as best we can. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But, but it, it doesn't matter how many of us there are. We don't know everything. 
You know what you're going through better than I do. You know what you're going through better than the elders do. If you're facing some weakness, some struggle, something that's discouraging or distracting you, call the elders and let them pray with you. Let them bandage your wounds and anoint you with the healing medicine of the oil. Secondly, pray with faith. There in James chapter 5 and verse 15, and the prayer of faith will save the sick. That means you follow the principle of James chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. James chapter 2, verse 15 and 16, If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them to depart in peace, be warm and be filled, but you don't give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? That's also faith by itself. If it does not have works, is dead. Remember, faith is completed by works. And so we're talking about the prayer of faith. We're not just talking about a prayer where we expect God to take over and do everything. The prayer of faith is one that says, I know I'm weak and I'm going to do something about it. I've called you to me. Help me, strengthen me, and I'm going to follow through with what you suggest. That's the prayer of faith. And when that's the attitude you got, it's, what is James 5 saying? God's going to do it. When I'm realizing that I'm weak and I've called my brethren, if I've called the elders together to pray for me, to apply this medicine, and I'm going to follow through with it because I believe God, guess what happens? I'm restored. I'm strengthened. The weakness will be taken away. It happens every time. It will never, ever fail. It always works. Thirdly, if you've sinned, confess your sins. There's an indication here that there might be some weakness that hasn't yet led you to sin. But if you've sinned, confess your sins. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9. You remember what that says? 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How many times? Every time. The prayer of confession offered in faith is granted every time. Time. Every time. Never fails. So if you recognize as a child of God that you've got weakness, discouragement, distress, call the brethren to you. Call the elders. Have them pray for you. Pray with faith. Confess your sins. And God will heal you. God will forgive you. God will restore you and strengthen you. But do it with faith. Not with doubting. Because the person who doubts is like one tossed on the sea. Number five, confess your sins to your brethren. And pray with one another. James chapter 5 there took an extra step. At first it's call the elders to you. Then in verse 16, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. We need to take advantage of the brethren that we have and have them come to us and strengthen us and help us. Let them know what we're going through, but we don't want to do that, do we? We don't want to do that until it gets so bad that we've done something really major that they're all going to find out about anyway, and so then we come forward. And even then, we want whoever's talking to say, well, brother so-and-so has committed an undisclosed sin. Some of you know about it, and he's confessing and repenting. But this isn't even really talking about coming forward, though that certainly would be an example of confessing to one another. This is talking about brethren just being with one another, praying with one another, helping one another, strengthening one another, letting one another know I've got issues, and I need your help. I'm not perfect. Let's face it, you know, we all know that we're not perfect, right? Why don't we just go ahead and admit it to one another so that we can help one another instead of trying to hide that? Listen, you think you've got problems admitting that you have issues? Put yourself in my shoes. If you all found out about some of the problems I have, 
I'd get fired. If y'all went and talked to Marita for a little hour, that'd be it for me. Except for she wouldn't tell you because she knows you'd fire me. We need to just be honest with one another and help one another. Strengthen one another. Confess our sins to one another so that we can strengthen and heal one another. And then when you're praying with one another, remember again, Make sure you pray with faith. This time, I'm not talking to the person who is confessing the trespass, who's confessing the wrong, who's dealing with the trouble. I'm talking about the folks who are going with you to pray with you. If you're doing that, if you're going to somebody, remember that, James 2, verse 15. Think about this. If a brother or sister is weak and spiritually destitute, and one of you prays for them, the God of peace strengthen and encourage you, but you don't give them the things they need, what good is that? How often will we sit there and we might even pray with somebody? And then after we're done praying, I mean, I've done it. After we're done praying with somebody, if you need something, what do we say? If you need something, give me a call. Of course they need something. That's why they came telling you they've got this problem. Start doing something about it. Strengthen them. Pray it in faith. Being willing to be a part of the answer to that prayer. Helping them overcome their weakness. And when we do that, every time God says yes. And finally, we need to watch out for our brethren. I realize, as we said up at verse uh, point one, that they're supposed to call the elders. But we need to remember that we've got to be on the lookout. We've got to look for weakness. Because we know folks don't want to admit it. So be on the lookout. And in James 5 and verse 19, remember it says this, Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Look for them. And when you see someone overcome, remember Galatians 6 verse 1? Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. So look for them. Bring them back. Remember Hebrews chapter 12, verse 12 and 13? James not the only person that ever used a physical ailment to describe spiritual weakness. There, the Hebrew writer says, Therefore strengthen the hands which hang down, and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. I believe that's what James 5, verse 14 and following is all about. We've got lameness. We've got dislocated joints. We've got struggles. And we need healing. And that's why God put us together. And so when you're facing that, be honest with it. Call your brethren to you. Start with the elders. Let them know. And then follow through with the healing medicine that they give you. Can you imagine if you were sick and you came to the doctor... And the doctor said, I know exactly what your problem is. Here's the medicine. Go take it. What would you do? You'd go take it, wouldn't you? That's what God has said here. When you're spiritually sick, go to the doctors and get the medicine from them and take it. Strengthen one another. Lift one another up.
I certainly hope this lesson has been helpful to you as we answer the question, should we anoint with oil? We discussed a lot of things in the lesson, but let's remember this one thing. No matter what we think, what we believe, what you think about my answer, remember that James's overall point was we must look out for one another. We must help one another. We must bandage one another up and help restore one another. That's our job as disciples. If somebody gave you this lesson, let me encourage you to come to our website at www.franklinchurchofchrist.com. We have lots of studies for you to enjoy. You can download the audio versions or the manuscript versions and use them however you like in order to glorify our God. If you have any questions about the question that we answered in this lesson about anointing with oil, or if you have other Bible questions, or if you have a question about the Franklin Church of Christ, or perhaps you disagreed with the answer to the question and you'd like to discuss it, whatever the case, give us a call at 615-794-2359, or you can contact us through our website at www.franklinchurchofchrist.com. May God richly bless you as you draw closer to Him, but more importantly, May you richly bless God.